You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LAFC. Welcome to week 10. Today's teaching is on Exodus 35, 1 through 40, 38. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, friends. How are you all? You did it. We made it through the whole book of Exodus. Yay! Did you enjoy our sweet smelling incense on your way in? Did you notice that? We did do that purposefully. We want this morning to think about some of the tangibleness of what we're studying. And so we thought that would be a fun way to start it off. So we're going to look through the last four chapters of the book of Exodus this morning. And after today, like Abby said, we do still have one more week of homework for you, and we have one more gathering here. So please come back next Thursday. The homework is not going to follow our usual format, but instead it's going to give you the opportunity to look back through what you've studied and learned and give you some time to digest it. We don't want to just close the book and walk away. We want this last week to give you some time for the Spirit to cement these truths into your heart. Our desire would be that the study of the book of Exodus would go with you as you continue to study more scripture in the future. And then next week when we come back together, our format's also going to be a little bit different here on a Thursday morning. We're going to have a shorter teaching from the front, and then it's going to be followed by a time of worship. After we have reflected about who the Lord has revealed himself to be this past semester, we want to worship him for who he is. So that's what we're going to be doing. This morning, we are going to see what we have longed for since the opening chapters of the book of Exodus. The Lord is coming to dwell with his people. The glorious presence of the Lord is coming down to dwell in the midst of the camp. We've referenced this subtitle of saved from and saved for many times over the last two years as we've studied the book of Exodus. And now we're going to finally see the culmination of this idea. The Lord has delivered the people out of Egypt, out of the hand of Pharaoh, not just to set them free, but to bring him to himself, bring them to himself, so that they can dwell with him and glorify him forever. Glory. What is glory? We're going to unpack this idea this morning as we talk together. The Hebrew defines glory as the weightiness of the Lord. It is the intrinsic character, it's his intrinsic worth, his character, his very essence. It is his power, splendor, majesty, beauty, and renown. It's his shining presence. Do you know that feeling of awe that you have when you see something great? Something so strikingly beautiful or unbelievable or terrifying? Often we see these things in creation, right? Maybe a mountaintop or a waterfall. Creation is a reflection of the glory of God. My husband has always loved to go hiking. But when we were first married, I didn't really share this love with him. I would join in on these hikes, but the thought of wandering aimlessly on trails through the forest, it just didn't really appeal to me. But what I found is that as we went on more hikes, if we had a destination at the end, it had a lot more appeal. And um, I found that it was like this big reward at the end. 
And I also found a specific love of waterfalls. When we get to a waterfall at the end of a hike, I'm never satisfied with just looking at it. I long to jump into it. I want to swim under it and be enveloped by it. I am literally like a kid. I cannot help but take my shoes off and get into the water. About four years ago, we went to Niagara Falls. Yes, yes. And I found that even as I stood on the edge of this magnificent waterfall, I still had something inside of me that wanted to jump in. Don't get too worried, I'm still here. Uh, it, at the same time, I was absolutely terrified of this idea, but there was something about the majesty of it that just drew me in. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. We don't merely want to see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else, which can hardly be put into words, to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become a part of it. At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of the morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see. But all the leaves of the New Testament are wrestling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. We are made to be in the presence of God's glory. Since the fall, humanity has been separated from God. And this is the first time that we see them back near God's presence. The section of Exodus that we looked at started with the instructions for Sabbath rest. Israel is going to construct the tabernacle, but before they do, Moses gives them again the instructions for work and rest. Work is inherently good, but it is easy for us in our sinful state to fall into a mindset of pride surrounding our work and accomplishments. Or maybe we become so engrossed in it that it almost becomes an idol for us. Israel's work, however, is to be grounded in the Sabbath, the reminder that it is unto the Lord that they work, and he is the one that upholds all things. The next few chapters are full of repetition. Almost word for word, we see the instructions that Moses has given on the mountain repeated here as the people construct it. Why? I mean, these details were hard enough to get through the first time. Why would the Lord see fit that we had to go back through them all again? We might be tempted to skip over this thinking we've already covered it. However, this repetition should actually call us to pay more attention rather than less. We repeat things that are important to us because we want people to remember them. We do this all the time with our kids. Buddy, you need to stop and look both ways before you cross the street. What did mom say? Stop and look both ways before you cross the street. If you see repetition in scripture, it should signal you to an important point that is being made. The tabernacle holds massive significance, both for Israel's history and for the plan of redemption. Can you think of anywhere else in scripture that we have repetition of details like this? In the Gospels, we have 
four accounts of the details of Jesus' life. Four accounts of the word becoming flesh and tabernacling among us. This is the most significant point in all of history, and it is worth repeating. The previous chapters on the tabernacle were, were instructions, remember? And so this time they're actually going to go about building it. The repetition also highlights for us the people's obedience. They obey the Lord fully. They carefully built the tabernacle exactly as the Lord had commanded them. The mercy that they had received, it was fresh on their minds. Their lives had been spared and they were full of gratitude. Even after their rebellion, the Lord is still going to come and dwell among them. How could their response be anything less than complete obedience? This perfect obedience brings glory to God. Out of hearts of gratitude and love for the Lord, the Israelites not only obey, but they generously give contributions for this tabernacle. These free will offerings, they're not commanded by the Lord, but rather they're an overflow of worship for him. The text tells us that every person is involved in giving. Do you remember what happened right before this? The golden calf. Every one of the Israelites had experienced God's mercy. And now everyone participates in the construction of the tabernacle. The Israelites are probably about a million people at this time. Can you imagine getting a million people on board for a task? I can barely get my five children on board for any project. This boggles my mind. Their unity and perfect obedience here is a testimony to the Lord. It is only by the Holy Spirit stirring in their hearts that unity like this could be achieved. Their hearts are moved by the Lord's mercy. So much that Moses must tell them they need to stop because their contributions are too great. Friends, are you moved by the work of the Lord in your life to grateful obedience? Do others see your extreme generosity and say, this is too much? If not, why? Why does the mercy we have received not permeate our hearts to action? For Israel, we know that it's not going to take long for them to become a forgetful people once more. For this mercy that they have received to become a distant memory. This perfect obedience is actually rare in Israel's history. More often than not, they are marked by disobedience. We too are forgetful people. We forget the radical nature of the gospel, how deep our sin is, and how amazing the grace we have received in Christ. If you feel convicted by your lack of obedience or generosity, ask the Spirit. Ask him to open your eyes to the beauty of the gospel and the glory of Christ. Ask that he would cause your heart to respond in worship in these ways. When we are so filled with the presence of the Lord, we do not need to hold on to our things tightly, but rather we can generously give them, trusting him. After collecting the materials for the tabernacle, the people go about the work of building it. Chris talked about Bezalel, Aholiab, and the craftsmen who were filled with the Holy Spirit to complete this task. And now we're going to see that they exercise this gift. Bezalel himself constructs the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat. Do you remember what his name means? In the shadow or protection of God. 
Imagine the weight of the task before Bezalel. He is constructing the very throne room of God. A place for the glory of God to come and dwell among them. We see later in 2 Samuel, during David's reign, that Israel disregards the Lord's instruction for moving the items in the tabernacle. They attempt to move the Ark of the Covenant on a cart. It jostles and a man named Uzzah reaches out his hand to steady it. He struck down dead because of the Lord's anger at his irreverence. The weightiness of God's glory is not to be taken lightly. Bezalel is just a man. He's a sinner in need of God's mercy like everyone else. And the Lord not only gives him the skills that he needs to create these items, but he also is graciously protecting him from his righteous wrath. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the, the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. All of the furnishings are constructed with the oversight of Bezalel and Aholiab. These craftsmen would have learned skills to construct things in Egypt for their masters. And now, through the Spirit, they're being equipped with knowledge and ability to use those skills for the Lord. I often see that this is how the Lord works in my life. The groanings and lessons and seasons of suffering, he refines. And through the work of the Spirit, he uses them as a gift to the body. Most of these details in the tabernacle are the same. But did you notice the added detail about the basin? What was it made of and who gave it? Mirrors. Women donated their mirrors. Women who ministered at the gate. We've not seen a lot of women, I don't know that we've seen any really this semester, but they're there. They are serving and contributing for this tabernacle alongside the men. They may have even suggested the use of these mirrors as they're not given in the original instructions. These dear women were slaves all of their lives, and now they're living in the desert. These mirrors would have been a costly gift, a very rare thing at this time, and far less accessible than they are today. Let's think about mirrors, ladies. How do we use them? I promised you a makeup lesson, right? Well, I certainly would not want to put my makeup on without the help of a mirror. A mirror is the primary way that we know how to modify our appearance, how to change the things we don't like and make ourselves look better. I don't know about you, but if I'm honest, this would have been a much harder gift for me to give than gold. By giving up the tools with which to gaze on their own reflections, these women understood that their true beauty came from beholding the Lord. They're exchanging the beauty of the world for the beauty of God. Charm is deceitful and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Honor her for all her hands have done and let her works praise her at the city gate. May we fear the Lord and seek his glory above our own. All right, now we're going to move through the repetition that we see here by putting ourselves in the shoes of an Israelite. And we're going to imagine this tabernacle in use. 
You can close your eyes if you want, or you can look at the pictures behind me on the screen. Imagine you're an Israelite walking to the tabernacle to atone for your sin. You've brought with you your lamb. It's perfect, spotless, and without blemish. It's the most perfect in your flock. As you walk up to the curtain of the outer court, you see the blue, purple, and scarlet threads. It's a reminder of the royalty and holiness of this God who dwells in your midst. When you enter, you see a bronze altar, the beauty of the priest's robes, but all of these things are marred by the stain of blood. The smell and signs of death are all around you. You see animals dying and sacrifices growing up. The stench is pugnant. As you take your lamb to the priest, you confess your sin and place your hand on the head of the animal, symbolizing a transfer of guilt from this animal to, from you to this animal. And you slit its throat. As you watch the blood flow out of this innocent lamb, you feel the immense ugliness of your sin. Then you look up at the tabernacle in front of you and you see the pillar of cloud. The glory of the Lord is in your midst and you are enveloped with gratitude for the mercy of the Lord in making a way for you to be in his presence. What an undeserved gift. You walk out as the priest washes his hands in the basin, grateful for this forgiveness, yet knowing you will be back again all too soon. As the priest, sees, as the priest washes his hands in the basin, he sees his reflection and, washes as, and watches as the blood from his hand clouds the water and covers it, washing away the defilements of sin and sacrifice. The priest goes into the tabernacle. He leaves the bright light of the outdoors and enters the holy place that's lit only by the lampstand. He lights this lampstand each morning and evening, and it's a reminder to him that Yahweh has illuminated all truth, bringing light into the darkest places of their lives. As they live according to the law and the mercy they've received, their lives flourish. The Lord is their light and life. The lampstand casts light onto the table with its 12 loaves and pitchers of wine. As the priest eats these loaves each week, he remembers the covenant that Yahweh has made with his people. The covenant that promised his presence among them and was sealed with a meal. This table is a beautiful picture of their communion with the Lord, that he is present in their lives and sustaining their every need. Carrying a censer of coals, the priest walks up to the last item in the holy place, the altar of incense. Incense is lying on the altar, and the priest carries the coals from the bronze altar and places them on the altar of incense. As he does so, a puff of smoke rises up and fills the holy place with a sweet aroma. Have mercy on your people, the priest intercedes on behalf of every Israelite, lifting their prayers and praise before the Lord. As the smoke rises over the curtain, he imagines the footstool of the Lord in the next room. The Ark of the Covenant with the stone tablets of the law covered by the mercy seat. He has never entered this place. Only the high priest enters the most holy place and only once a year on the Day of Atonement. It's impossible for the people to make sacrifice for every wicked deed of their heart. 
And it's only by the mercy seat covering the demands of the covenant that the Israelites can be spared. All of these things, they beg for a better way. A better high priest, a better mercy seat, a better tabernacle, a better sacrifice. The groanings of these offerings, they stir a deep longing for the ultimate deliverer. The one promised to Adam who had crushed the head of the serpent. All of these things point us to Christ. When all the building is done, we're told that they finished the work and Moses blesses it. Did you notice the creation language that we had you compare here to Genesis? They made all that the Lord commanded them and it was good. They are reflecting the image of God in creation. God creates beauty out of chaos and it's in his nature to create. We are made in that image. As we create beauty unto the Lord in obedience, we're imaging God. Ladies, when you bring order out of chaos in your homes, when you create beauty and life-giving spaces for your families, spaces where your families can live out their lives in worship to the Lord, your obedience in that calling of service brings glory to God. One year exactly, after Israel is delivered from Egypt, the tabernacle is set up. The priests and all the tabernacle furnishings are anointed and set apart for service to the Lord. Moses does all that was, he was commanded to do. And the last words in this section before the glory of the Lord descends is that Moses finished the work. It is finished. The tabernacle is complete and a way has now been made for God to dwell among his people. This mirrors Jesus' final words on the cross. It is finished. Through his death and resurrection, we have a way to dwell with God. And so the glory and presence of the Lord descends in a cloud. The Lord takes up residency in the tabernacle. In Hebrew, this is called the Shekinah glory. It's the settling or dwelling presence of the Lord. The people have been saved from the bonds of slavery for the purpose of Shekinah glory. We too, as believers, are saved from the bonds of sin for the purpose of Shekinah glory. This settling and dwelling presence of the Lord. We are living tabernacles. 1 Corinthians 3.16 tells us, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? We house the glory and the beauty of the Lord. Think about this. The spirit of God has taken up residency in us. May these passages in Exodus open our eyes to the reality of how radical it is that a holy God would come to live in the midst of an unholy person. This is Shekinah glory. How should this affect us? 1 Corinthians goes on to say in 6, 15 to 19, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her body? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the, 
but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We are married or covenanted to Christ. When we sin, we don't just sin against another person, but we sin first and foremost against Christ. Do our actions reflect this reality? Do we see the beauty of our body in the mirror and see a reflection of ourselves, a reflection of Christ? Friends, I fail at this regularly. We all do. This isn't a matter of perfection, but do we confess and repent and turn when we fall to walk in obedience? There is mercy and grace and continual washing when we fail in these things. But are we seeking his glory? Are we seeking to be tabernacles of the living God, bearing his name to the world around us? Ephesians 2 tells us that we are not just being built up into individual tabernacles, walking around on our own, but rather we're being built up together into the house of God. So let's not seek just our own sanctification in these things, but rather let's spur one another on. Let's link arms with one another as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We come to the very end of our text, and Moses cannot enter the tabernacle. Moses, Moses, who was the deliverer, who talked with God on the mountain, who met with God regularly as a friend, who interceded on behalf of the people, whose face was veiled after seeing the glory of the Lord. Moses, who constructed the tabernacle, is denied access to the presence of the Lord. Why? Why is this? It's because Moses is just a man, and no amount of works of righteousness are enough. He is a type of Christ pointing the way, but he too is waiting for full access to the Lord. He is waiting to look fully on the glory of the Lord. Moses needs a way in to the most holy place. The way in is shadowed for us in the book of Leviticus. The way in is through a great high priest, Christ. Through Christ, we have full and consistent access to the Lord. Friends, when I read about this experience, I long to see it with my own eyes. To marvel at the beauty of the tabernacle and see the cloud of glory. I want to touch it and see it and smell it and feel the things. Like the waterfall, I want to be fully immersed in it. I want to physically experience the Shekinah glory. It's a deep longing in my soul. Why? Why do I long for this when we have a better dwelling presence of the Lord through his spirit? It's because even though the indwelling of the spirit is, a, is better than the tabernacle, we too are still waiting. We're waiting to be for a physical dwelling with the Lord. We're awaiting the new heavens and the new earth, where we will be with him in the fullness the way he intended. 
The tabernacle is a picture for us of the actual throne room of God. Hebrews 8.5 tells us, They serve a copy and shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. One day, we will physically experience these heavenly things in our resurrected and glorified bodies, experiencing glory greater than any tabernacle on earth. We will be in his presence, unhindered by sin and beholding his Shekinah glory. It's good for us to long for these things, to remember that this is a temporary home. And we, when we push back at the brokenness that we see around us in our world, we do so with hope knowing that one day all wrongs will be made right. And that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you in awe that you would seek to make a way for us to dwell with you, to experience your Shekinah glory, to be in your presence. Lord, you are more wonderful to behold, more beautiful than any treasure on earth, more amazing and terrifying than anything we could see. Lord, as we move about our lives the rest of this week, would you keep that reminder before us, Lord? Would we remember that this world is a temporary home? Would we ask your spirit to remind us of the radical nature of the gospel, that you have made a way and that we have an inheritance and we will one day dwell with you in Shekinah glory. We thank you for all of these things, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.